From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. Got the whole crew here via Zoom most weeks. Right now we have Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner joining me, Caden Massey. We are rolling into two hours of sports analytics. We're going to end with an interview this week. We have Corey Craywick of the Baltimore Ravens talking about the NFL draft, which is great fun. We have a couple of open line segments. We've got some good sports to talk about, some fun topics in the queue. Our first quarter has been our COVID quarter for the last year plus, and I'm always interested, gentlemen, as we record here on Tuesday afternoon, what in the world of COVID-19 has caught your eye lately? Well, I'll start. I mean, the you know, uh, from a more personal front, obviously the big news for a parent of a 15-year-old yesterday was that the Pfizer vaccine appears to be the e emergency youth authorization appears to be happening within days for 12 to 15 year olds. Yep. Um, obviously, we've been talking about um, you know because they tend to play a lot of sports and then tend they tend to be spreaders. They're not going to get severe illnesses, but they're certainly one of the larger spreading populations. And so I think there'll be a big uh, it'll be a big deal. I actually looked. I think it's somewhere around seven percent of the population is in that age bracket. And so if you add you know I don't know if seventy or eighty percent of that age bracket gets vaccinated. That's another five or 6% on top of the 50 plus percent that has had at least one shot. And, you know, that heads us closer to, I don't know if it's the magic number of 70%, but I know 6% is a longer way towards 70%. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm going to respond by, by wondering what the magic percentage number is and at least stating the fact that we don't know. Right. Um, And just a, Nate Silver had an observation that 50% plus a third, well, actually a third of the remaining 50%, puts you around 65%, which suggests that we're potentially pretty close. Um, hey, hold on. We're, if you've are, looked, we, are we at 50, we're at 50% of adults, I suppose? So we're, I, we're, we're I gonna, think we're getting close to, to 50% of the population having at least one dose, maybe 42% or something. Yeah, it's still, it's still, it's still lower half of the 40s anyway. But yeah, if we're going to start talking about herd immunity and if we're going to celebrate the under 16s being approved because it's important, then we need to include them in our calculations. And one of the reasons I'm saying that is because I think it leaves us a little more sober about where we are as a country, especially since things are slowing down in terms of vaccination take up. Well, that to me, I think is the biggest fear is vaccination take up. But I'm hoping that we get above 50%. Why do I throw that out? Only because in multiple countries, they've seen once they cross the 50% mark, things really start to drop off pretty rapidly. Yep. Um, yeah. There isn't too many countries where we've seen that, but that seems to be, you know, plus or minus a little lee- leeway, pretty consistent. I know here where I am right now in Israel, um, it never, it didn't really drop rapidly and actually stalled for about three weeks until they hit that 50% mark or around that. I don't, don't want to think it's a magic number. And then it just fell off a table. They had 13 cases here the other day. Um, It is essentially back to normal. But in Israel, they have not done anybody under 16. And that big block of people is still sitting there unvaccinated. Yet the the case numbers seem to drop to 
to practically nothing. So but I'm I assume, Adi, I assume, but you've yeah. also pointed this out in earlier shows, their take up rate of people 18 and older is much higher than the U.S.'s. And so oh, yes. you know, I'm trying 80. to say that given that we have this, we've talked about this never vaxxer, never trier population, um, given that we have that group, which could be as large as 25 to 30 percent in the U.S., if that's even close to where it is, then we can all do math. You better do 80 to 90 percent of the rest of the people. And right now, we're there in the 65 and older group, but we're not there in any other. So us to inch, I'm saying inch closer to 60, 70 percent. Um, we're going to have to do the 16 to 18, uh, the 12 to 15 year olds. But I agree with you. I've heard Dr. Fauci and others just recently say if we get to 50 percent, the number of cases is going to plummet at a very quick rate. So there was a thread this past week by Dr. Ashish Ja, I may be pronouncing his last name. No, that's name. correct, of the Brown School of Medicine. Yeah, he's been a pretty prominent um, commentator on, on all things COVID for the last year. He's the dean of the public health school there at Brown. And he talked about, can we look at heterogeneity in the U.S. to get at this issue? Can we get some sense of how true that is, that once you get over 50%, you see a drop in cases? And in fact, he says, look, we're beginning to get some evidence like that. Because if you look at the top five states for vaccination, all of which are above 50% with at least one shot, you start seeing pretty big declines in cases. Now, look, it's not perfect. Lots of confounds. This, he's not doing the actual study. He's just pointing out, we do have this variation within the U.S. We can get some kind of, we can get some look at it. And the early look looks like it is supportive of this idea that once you hit 50%, you start getting a big drop off. Yeah. So let me ask you guys what, what you think about vaccine hesitancy um, and whether it'll be, extend down to 12 to 15 year olds will the parents allow their kids to be vaccinated any sense i would imagine it's um correlated meaning i would imagine a vaccine hesitant parent of a uh 12 to 15 year old i don't know why they would say well i'm not going to get it but i'm going to give it to my kid i don't i don't yeah, see right, i don't right, see right. as i don't see that logic happening um i think could, that's a however set. However, Adi, the one thing we have talked about is um, when the school says in September, if you want to come in person, you have to be vaccinated. That's a different ballgame. The the parent may not have to be vaccinated to go to work, but the kid may have to be vaccinated to go to school. So we may actually see a much larger take up rate of 12 to 15 year olds than we do of their parents. Is that really going to be possible for a public school? with an emergency use authorization from the FDA. I mean, this is something that is used. I mean, I have to, I've tried to reiterate with all of you guys, and this vaccine is safe as far as anybody can tell, yet it still only has this emergency use, use authorization. Wouldn't it, you would expect before you can demand that people take a vaccine that it at least get approved, you know, fully approved by the Food and Drug Administration? I don't know the semantics on, I mean, I do know the semantics of the word emergency versus full authorization. I get that idea. Um, Well, as you know, universities have announced it. Our home university, University of Pennsylvania has announced if anybody wants to come back in person in the fall, they must be vaccinated. Not only must be vaccinated, they must be vaccinated with a U.S. approved uh, vaccine. So the people that have gotten at the moment, AstraZeneca, 
the, the Russian vaccine, the Sino vaccine, um, even possibly a lot of people in India who haven't gotten Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson & Johnson, as, as it stands right now, they'll have to come to the United States, get vaccinated uh, with whatever, quarantine until then, and then they can come into the classroom. So I think universities are absolutely going to mandate it. And you're asking public schools that are diff- funded in a different way. That's a tough call. I don't know. Maybe. They, look, as far as I, I have kids, you have kids, Adi. They, they require you to have measles shots. They require you to have all kinds of shots. I do. But the language that's being used to, to, to differentiate between those vaccines is the years and years of field testing um, and right. the comfort with the vaccines that, that, they, that they have extraordinarily rare complication rates. We're looking at a vaccine. Now, I'm comfortable with it, and I understand the biology of it. I understand immunology. But when you get to children, things are a little bit different. These are vaccines that are designed to stimulate the immune system, get your body, which is recognized from birth, what's native and what's not, to see these proteins and say, hey, this isn't natural, um, even though it was made by your body, and attack it. There potentially is concern, particularly below 12, and I think really the younger, even younger ages, closer to, to birth. I don't think there's much of a concern between 12 and 15, but the, the observation that's being made is this is not something we know enough about. So and Adi, I, let me I ask don't you a question. It is, it, is the lack of knowledge, this is what I was going to ask. I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, people keep referring to Israel, which is where you are right now, and people keep referring oh. to, you know, the number of millions of people in Israel. Is there a metric we should be looking at different than sample size? Because typically knowledge and statistics, standard errors go by sample size. But you would agree a million people observed for seven years is different than seven million people observed for six months. And so exactly. how do you think we're going to balance here? I'll call it length of time with the number of people and how do we, what is an appropriate way to think about sample size in this case? Well, I actually think that actually I I did some investigation in this and there really isn't any, and no one, no doctor was able to tell me and most were convincingly clear that the answer was no, that there isn't any vaccine that anyone could think of that has a long-term complication for which you'd need many years to follow before you could observe. Generally, there are complications from vaccines that have taken a while to be observed because they were rare and you needed many, many millions of people to see them. With the data that we have internationally about the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, it seems clear we have enough sample size to know that there's no short-term complication that isn't yet observed yet. And since that's there good isn't any that are so that's bad, an important fact yeah. for our listeners is that the sample size, I think we both agree, in the, given this has been given to hundreds of millions of people, the, the, and even, even in a one in a million rare event rate or one in 100,000, we have enough people to know there's not a short term effect. So, but we haven't looked at 12 to 15. Yeah, that's, that's the just thing, the, the issue. The long term, Adi, you said that there isn't an example of another vaccine where there were these long term effects that were observed. But the, 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 we are talking about children now. So does that include studies of children where developmentally they're going through, you know, big changes? Could that actually facilitate one of these long-term events? Do we know that that doesn't happen? I'm just trying to, we're, we're, I'm just trying to be as honest as possible with these kinds of concerns or open. So, to them uh, no, children are always a little bit different. I mean, I, I've heard in the investigations, I learned about a flu vaccine and in, in, used in Finland that, that caused narcolepsy. It, it took a while to discover it, but it was so transparent that it, 
it was noticeable and it happened right away. Um, so they quickly banned it or reformulated the flu vaccine. But vaccines like the ones that you were describing, the measles, the ones we take, give our kids, and we give them to them very, very young age. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any evidence of any kind of long-term consequence, despite what uh, the anti-vax community have said, particularly about autism, that got to be Is- absolutely empty-headed. This made me think of another statistical question I wanted to ask you guys. Um, People make it seem like there's this, you know, it's just because of the language we use. Like there's almost this hard cutoff, like 16's fine, but 15's not. Um, What do we know (laughs) about the continuous nature of this? Like, you know, I'm just saying, are there many epidemiological phenomenon where it could actually be that there's, I don't want to call it a hard cutoff, but if we look at, let's call it risk versus age, that there actually is an inflection point to which it gets really steep, like, you know, 14's not okay, but 15's okay. Or like, you know, when I say not okay, I mean, it's like there's 10 times the rate of complication. Are there ones that are that, or do we expect it to be more a continuous linear-like curve? It's continuous, but I doubt it's linear. Um, So I would imagine that, and from what I understand, the complication rate from COVID tends to go up around 20, 2021, like below that age, there doesn't seem to be barely any incidents. I think there's under 300 deaths among 21 and under. Um, one thing we do know is that high school age kids transmit it and they transmit it pretty rapidly amongst each other. But below that, it seems to really not transmit much at all. Well, what do so we know? That's- do we expect there to be, is there any chance that if you had to bet on the correlation between the rate of severity and the rate of complication from the, uh, you know, vaccine, is there any reason to believe those would be correlated at all? Like, um, or do you think those are totally independent processes? Like, you know, if people can't get severely ill from the, from COVID, then maybe they can't get severely ill from the vaccine. I, 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 I mean, it could be, but I don't think so. I mean, I think it's the vaccine is a the things that cause complications for the vaccines, I think, are autoimmune or related things. That, I mean, this is a this is what's happening with the Pfizer vaccine is and, and the, the adenovirus stuff is a little bit more complicated. I don't really understand that stuff, but I think it is similar. But the basic issue is to cause an immune response. Um, and and most of us we generally do very well with that. Um, but there are complications of these hyperimmune responses that people can get, uh, particularly the dose, the dose of the vaccine could be high and that, that sets off a chain of events. Um, and, and I don't think it has any, my personal guess is it doesn't have anything to do with it. Well, let me ask you vaccine. another question. Okay. Let me, yeah. Let me ask you a related question, Adi. If the likelihood of them, of somebody getting a severe reaction at younger is low, uh, right. Um, maybe they should get a much smaller dose. And so maybe Absolutely. they don't need yeah. the number of antibodies and therefore, and that would also mitigate the chances of an over antibody reaction. I apologize for the lack of epidemiological term there. I don't know how to call it that to say, let's lower the antibodies by lowering the uh, dosage and you don't need as much of a dose. Could be, we can investigate that, but I don't know the answer. <laughs> Guys, what, what do you think is the consequence of a United States where we really plateau at a lower number than we thought we were going to plateau at with the vaccine. So the anti-vaxxer thing, it seems to me that it may only, 
actually evidence would suggest it's even growing since the first of the year. Um, what, what, is, what does it look like? How does this thing play itself out over the next year or, or six months if we just don't make a lot more traction on vaccinations? It's a good question. I think, um, you know, I are there think- things, are, there, are there big things we can't do? I mean, can we not open schools if that happens? Will companies not be able to bring people back into the office to the extent that they want to? Will we not have live sporting events? Will we have continued restrictions on dining in restaurants? I mean, these are the things that have affected people's lives, I guess. And, and how do we see it? Will we see, will we see spikes again? Is, I mean, we haven't seen a spike in a while. Are we going to see a spike? I'm just wondering, what, what is life like if we don't actually get up to a number where we really get this thing under control? It's just kind of little fires everywhere. Well, my forecast, if we don't, I mean, I think we'll obtain the, the 50% mark. I think we're never going to have the kind of breakouts, hospital uh, deluges, if you will, that we've seen. But I think we'll probably until still simmer. So this is constant back burning, you know, fire that's just going to keep sort of playing around. And we're going to be depending on the vaccine protecting us individually. I remember once when I first started teaching statistics, my first course ever, I did a, an example with a clinical trial of the polio vaccine. And the thing that I remember striking me as amazing was the vaccine for polio was something like 50% effective. Right, right. That's it. It depended on herd immunity to drive the, the polio vaccine, the polio away. And, and 50% was enough to make the R less than one and it went away. And then when the Pfizer result and the Moderna result showed 90, 95% of the efficacy, that was just like mind blowing to me because that's just very, very, very good. It's not, there are vaccines that are better than that, but that just seemed to be a terrific result, which means that we can generally rely on a bunch of factors to stay taken together to protect almost all the population who has been vaccinated. One, the incidence is going to be relatively rare. So getting running into someone with an active case will be fairly low. Getting it from someone with an if you if you've been vaccinated is going to be very even, you know, a factor of 20 on that. Having a bad case also even smaller. So I generally think but, but is it, that, that is we're going to be okay. We'll open up the restaurants. We'll be open up sporting events. Yet we'll have a, 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 a cases burning in the background. Um, as long okay, as buddy, we let, here's a, here's a, here's a hypothesis that, that we, we get there slower than we would otherwise. So the seeming, the, the, the most, the biggest thing we'll miss is this abrupt drop that we've seen in places like Israel that come from very high levels of vaccination. And in the absence of abrupt drops, there will be, we'll just be slower to get back to normal. So for example, guys, you know, we're all ready to take students back at University of Pennsylvania this fall, but until Philadelphia says we can have gatherings of more than 25 or whatever, we're not gonna be able to put all of our students back in the classroom. And, and municipalities are gonna be reluctant to, to make changes and open up again until we see more drops. So the, if we are less vaccinated, the drop will be less precipitous and municipalities will be more reluctant to open back up. That's, that's, I guess, the most boring. I, I, I think there, I don't think there's any doubt about it. Um, but I think Adi's right. I think, you know, we'll get to a level where maybe there's in the, I even, I don't even know what a low level would be. I mean, it'd probably be in the, I can't imagine us getting to a level below, at least in the thousands of cases per day still, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to be 50,000 cases a day, but there could be, 
thousands of cases per day. And that might be, and then the number of deaths could be, well, we know how many people, how do you, this, let's go back in time to March of 2020, where you were telling us data on the number of people that die from the flu every year. And so if, if I told mm. you that the deaths from COVID were equal to the deaths from the flu, would people find that acceptable? They should. I mean, I mean, basically because it's a choice not to get vaccinated, right? So if you've chosen not to get vaccinated and you are essentially accepting the fact that the risk of dying from this is something that you just aren't going to worry about because there are other background concerns that you have that you can't control um, that are approximately the same size. Let me bring, up, mean, one other, let me bring up one other factor. Last time I checked, this, um, the vaccine does not give lifetime immunity. So we haven't even talked well, about yeah. the problem of, okay, so now you need a shot again. I'll speak for myself. Maybe I need a shot again. I'll make it up early 2022. Totally. What fraction of people are going to get that? And so we may actually drive the rate down, but then it could spike back up a year from now because only I'll make it up 70% of, sorry, yes, yeah, 70% of 70% get revaccinated. So that, that would especially be a problem if this anti-vax movement continues to expand and continues to, to, to get traction. Eric, one of the places, the, I think the booster is relevant to this other hypothesis we've been unpacking, which is that, well, speculating on what the world looks like if we don't do better with vaccinations. Doesn't it mean the boosters are going to become a, a more important part of our life? I mean, just if there's more latent disease out there than the variants that come through are going to have a better, more material to work with. And they're going to, we're going to be at greater risk. I think that's the way it's going to work. I mean, if we, if we don't put, if we don't scrunch this thing all the way down, it just seems like boosters are going to be a more important part of our life sooner. Yeah, I, I can, I, I, you know, it's, these are all individual differences. I can speak for myself and I say, I have full expectation that I will be getting a booster shot for the near future. I don't know if near future is the next two years, three years, five years, or however many number of years. Um, but that, you know, for someone who's gotten the vaccine, I don't know why that person might, would be particularly hesitant on getting a booster. Well, I'm, seen- I'm, I'm completely convinced that we're going to get one. I'm not convinced we're actually going to need one. Um, as fast as the, the, the thought is, I mean, the, as I've said before, this is not a rap. This is a rapidly mutating, somewhat rapidly mutating virus, but it's not massively mu- 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 uh, rapidly muta- mutating. But I think, you know, just getting back to the, the point, we have 50 states that are each going to do things differently. Um, there is an opportunity to observe. You, you, I am, I am completely convinced that there are some states that are going to prevent their colleges from gathering, going to prevent the schools from opening up, and others you can name them that are they're just going to be completely wide open. And I think the opportunity is to see, to study, to look at them and see what you learn, mm-hmm. and potentially mm-hmm. potentially have some influence across. Also, that relates you know, also something, Adi, to what's happening now. We see the government now saying they're going to redistribute vaccines to where there's demand, yeah. and so yes, you know exactly. some. And, and also, I think even in Pennsylvania, I think they announced today that um, the FEMA sites were closing at the end of the month. In other words, there isn't the demand for these massive, uh, you know, FEMA sites, right. but they're going to try to push it into every pharmacy. You know, I was in New York City on Sunday and 
Um, there were people standing outside of the Museum of Natural History asking me to come in to get my vaccination shots if I didn't have them. Like, I could have just walked into the Museum of Natural History and gotten a vaccination shot right then and there. Well, this is pretty clearly the next front. And we've talked right. about persuasion efforts, and that's all fine and good. We need persuasion efforts. But structurally, the delivery mechanism is changing. And they're changing from this kind of mass delivery to much more localized. And one of the ideas is that people will trust more their private practitioner or their local pharmacist. And if we can increase the volume available to those guys, then we're going to have an easier case convincing people to get a shot. Well, they're also moving, as you guys know, they're also moving to mobile. Uh, There's going to be a lot more mobile uh, going around, pop-up stands going around. Um, And I I know you would love this, Kate. I know you saw this. There was all this stuff about the incentive structure. I think it was Maryland where you get a shot and you get a beer. (laughs) <laughs> they're giving and another one they're giving people i think it was maryland is giving people bonds like you get a hundred dollar bond if you get a covid shot okay, As a so that, fact, that, i i have more confidence that's interesting to me because you know I, i'm kind of bored by these academic papers that show you know if you pay people to take shot their, their medicine they're more likely to take their medicine but if we're talking about from a policy perspective Sure. And it's worth something, right? It's what we could, what would be the economic value to that's escape? it. That's the right question. And and that may be enough to get some people over the hump. I'm more confident in that kind of program than I am, you know, a mobile unit that just goes around into neighborhoods. Because if you drive into some of these neighborhoods and the entire culture of the neighborhood says, Don't trust medicine, don't trust institutions, just because you drive up there with it doesn't mean they're all of a sudden gonna start trusting. There's no reason to trust that van. So I'm a little skeptical that all these innovative ways of delivering are going to make a difference. I really like this philosophy of let's make sure that the folks people already receive their medicine from the folks that they already see in the doctor's office, that they have available shots because those are a trusted vehicle. But that, but I like this incentive idea. I hadn't seen that before. And be, it'll be interesting. To see and and it's varying by that. state, which is also fun. This is gets back to Adi's point. Um, you could imagine there being a besides the heterogeneity in rates and seeing how that and COVID vaccinations and seeing how that affects, you know, we'll, we'll probably get a good estimate of when the thing drops off because we'll have lots of variation in points on the curve. We're also going to see possibly which incentives tend to work more than others. Yeah, right, right. You know, I, I hadn't thought about it, Eric, but all of a sudden those papers sound kind of interesting. What incentives are, let's just assume incentives are helpful. Which kinds of incentives will be most impactful with the audiences we're trying to reach? Super interesting. All right, guys, that has been Q1. That has been our COVID-19 discussion for the week. We still have three quarters of sports analytics to go. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter here. Open lines, open topics. Kate Massey hosting with my colleagues and friends, longtime Moneyball coordinators, Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner. We do this for two hours every week. You can reach out if you'd like. We'd love to hear from you. At W Moneyball is our Twitter handle. Probably the easiest way to reach us. At W Moneyball on Twitter. Send us suggestions, criticisms, ideas, whatever you got. Also, you can email us. It's kind of our mailbag. We periodically, it's been a while since we've been in there. We will get back to it. We love to hear from you. We love to get your questions and ideas on air. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.com. Edu Moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. Guys, a lot of sports um, to catch up on. We're dang near done with the NBA season, for example. MLB, maybe we're getting some sense of what teams are there, what teams are interesting. But 
can't go too quickly past the NFL draft. We had three days of NFL draft beginning last Thursday night. Um, all the all the guys have written up their grades. They've made their commentary. The, the 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 charts are done for the year. What is your take, Eric? Did you take much of it in? Did you enjoy? Did anything jump out to you? What's your take on 2021 NFL draft from Cleveland this year? Yeah, I watched a lot of it. Um, I think the thing that surprised me the most was, you know, I wasn't surprised that Trevor Lawrence went one. I think we all knew that. Um, I wasn't surprised that Zach Wilson to the Jets went two. The part I was a little surprised on was that the 49ers took Trey Lance at three. But also, if you go back to how they got to three, which was moving from 12 to three, they gave up a huge number of first round picks and other picks to make that move. And so now that I'm thinking to myself, they kind of had to know that two quarterbacks were going to go before them. So then to move from 12 to three, you have to be really convinced that whoever you pick is going to be better than the other two of the elite five that are there. And this is what's been bothering me from the beginning. I have no confidence whatsoever that Trey Lance is going to be better than Mac Jones or Justin Fields. I just don't know. I mean, maybe he may well be. He may be the best of the five as far as I know, but enough to give up the amount of capital they gave up to do it. This is what's been bothering me all along. So I I think that's, I mean, it's fair. Obviously they gave up a lot to get up there and that's questionable. It's super questionable for any position. It's really even questionable for quarterbacks. If you look at the, the best, the best new charts that I've seen, the best new analyses that I've seen are done by Timo Riska. We talked to Timo last week and yep. he estimated with, with, you know, the advanced statistics and current comp costs and all those things, he estimated trade charts for quarterbacks alone. And they do go up. The, the first pick is worth more than the, the third pick is worth more than the 12th, Eric, for quarterbacks. That's not, I don't doubt that, but remember they're choosing but, 49ers with certainty had yeah. to know. They're choosing between the. They're not choosing between the third pick. They're choosing between the third quarterback. That to me, that's what's get, bothering me. I get it. I get it. I get it. I'm, I'm trying to give them a little bit because it's QBs, but still, it's a steep price to pay. Here's one thing that's true, and I don't know how to weigh it out. Coaches want influence over the players that they get, especially at a position as important as quarterback, and so they would place a lot of value on being able to choose their guy out of the three, as opposed to taking whoever was left and that's probably overdone, but it's not completely overdone. I mean, everything we know about the psychology of choice says that you're going to be more committed to a player. If you have some influence over which players taken and you want your coaches committed to a player, right? I mean, you can, a team, a franchise can be too committed a few years on from a high draft pick. They might stay with them too long, but if you're talking about development of a player, it is, human nature to be more committed to those you have some influence over guys. I'm not justifying it all all together. I'm saying this is a factor. It is in there. It's one of the things that makes the GM's job even harder. This whole NFL draft thing is it's hard enough to go a whole year. We'll talk about this in the fourth quarter with Corey. They go a whole year building a board and it's scouts talking to, to the head of personnel, talking to GM. It's a scout conversation. And then at the very end, the coaches get involved. And it's like, oh my God, this was so hard before. And now you've got the other side of the building comes into the conversation and they've done their evaluations and they've been in on some interviews. And now you're trying to satisfy the scouts, the pro personnel guy, the GM, and now the coaching staff as well. And you can't just blow them off. They're part of the team. Also, they are going to be the ones responsible for developing the player. 
By the way, what do you think would have happened? By the way, I was thinking about this the whole time. What if the what if the Jets had not taken Zach Wilson, and now the 49ers really, you know, I mean, I understand they would have taken him, but do we know would they have preferred Trey Lance to Zach Wilson? Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I, I think most of the world was surprised that they took Lance, and it's one of the reasons I. Just in, in entertainment value, I was delighted they took Lance because it's going to be fun to see what Shanahan can do with the guy. He's of the three guys available. He was consensus high volatility, like lowest floor, highest ceiling. And so let's put him in one of the most interesting offenses with one of the best off- offensive minds out there and see what happens. Well, it's what's your opinion? Exciting. All right, uh, Katie, you could have one of two scenarios now. You're the Patriots and you got Mac Jones at 15, didn't give up anything to get him. Or you have the 49ers and you have Trey Lance and you gave up. I'm making this up, but not exactly two number ones, a two and a four, or whatever it was. Who got I think the Patriots got the better deal. And I'm not saying, by the way, Mac Jones is better than Trey Lance. I'm not arguing that. I wouldn't even know if who's better. But I would say I'd rather have my potential franchise quarterback at 15 than giving up the amount of capital they did. I think the Patriots, by that definition, had a better draft than the 49ers. They just did. I, I think I, from, a, from an analytics perspective, there's no question. I mean, it's so expensive. The difference between those two things is so expensive. And there's, there's no historical evidence that the guy taken at three is going to be that much better than the guy taken at 12. The uncertainty is just so high. Also, let's, po- let's point out this fact. Um, what odds do you give it that Trey Lance beats out Jimmy G for the starting job of the 49ers? Week one? Low. That, all week right. One, week one, 2022? Very high. Very high. <laughs> Okay, so so now you're even. I'm just saying you're now even drafting the quarterback of the future. You're even talking about now. So now you're. And by the way, I, I know you know I love the doomsday scenario. Um, the 49ers go 11 and five. That with Jimmy G. Jimmy G. Starts has a good season, goes 11 and five. Now what do you do? If Jimmy G. Shocks everybody, then sorry, 12 gonna, and five. They're playing 17 games. They're going to learn a lot about Lance, even if he's not starting. It's just like it's like the Chiefs learned a lot about Mahomes from practice in the season before he became a starter, and they'll they'll learn a lot about Lance. And if Jimmy G. turns amazing this year, shocking shocks everybody, then they can either deal him on a hot market if they like what they have at Lance, or they can turn Lance around and they can deal Lance pretty soon. I I don't think having extra quarterback capital is a bad thing it's not it's not about the other part of the draft that you asked me what caught my eye the other part was the eagles and so the eagles were an interesting position Adi, at number 12 which was the following which was by the time the eagles by the time it got through pick number nine there were three thought of as very good receivers Adi, on the board one was jamar chase out of lsu one was Jalen Waddell out of Alabama, and the other one was Devontae Smith out of Alabama, who was the Heisman Trophy winner. Well, by the time it got to number 10, Waddell and Chase were gone. They were off the board. The Eagles, everybody knew, wanted a wide receiver. So the Eagles traded up from 12 to 10 with the Cowboys to jump in front of the Giants and to pick Devontae Smith. Now, that I thought was fascinating. First of all, I'm surprised that Cowboys even made a trade with the Eagles. But then secondly, how crucial in the mind of the Eagles it was that they get one of those big three receivers, even if it was just for the public and selling it. If the Eagles did, remember, and also the Eagles were at six and the Eagles traded back. So if the Eagles had been kind of left out in the cold on one of the big three receivers, I think all hell would have broken loose. 
Do you think it was worth it? So set aside the PR. Do you think you do? You, what do you think about their decision? We were knocking these other teams for they trading up for QB. I forget. Was it a three or a four? I don't know. I, I it was either. Maybe Matt can let us know. I knew it was either a three or a four. Adi, given how much trade capital they had gotten from the trades where they moved back from six to 12. See, then you can do, it depends how you want to do the math. I viewed it as they went from six to 12 to 10, but then they gained a lot of picks and they gave one of them back. I didn't actually think it was a bad trade. I actually thought it was a pretty good trade given what they gave up. Well, if you believe in in what everyone said about there are three big receivers here and then it's a big drop off, then, then maybe, but in, in general, I'm skeptical of those kinds of tiers. They looked that way on the way out, but, on the way into the, into the league, but a few years, it won't look quite that separate. But then there was the other big trade. The other, I think the biggest deal of the draft, I'm, I'm, I, sh- I can't leave them out. The Bears trading up to get Justin Fields. That was huge. They moved from, what is it, 21, I think, to 12 yeah. to get him. Yeah. And, and they gave up a huge amount of capital. But I mean, for some reason, see, this is what's asymmetric. For the 49ers, it seems ridiculous. But for the Bears, it seemed perfectly logical to go from 21 to 12, then to uh, the 49ers going from 12 to 3. Well, I share that reaction. I thought it was, as, it was almost a strong move by the Bears. They, they're in a different situation. They've been, they've, they, you know, you and I were sitting in Philadelphia together, Eric, whenever they made that Trubisky trade. And we, oh, yeah. call it, we call it stupid the second it happened. And most of the world did. They gave up a ton to move just a little bit. And they took a quarterback that nobody else was chasing at the moment. So this is a different situation. I mean, feels a lot of people had feels as the number two QB in the, in the, in the, in the class. And they gave a lot up, but they didn't get they they didn't move halfway through up the board. I don't know. It's my my advisor and collaborator Thaler was giving me a hard time for liking this trade, but I feel like Chicago was in a position where they had to do something on the QB front. Again, back to the PR of the thing. Also, when you're a franchise, when you don't have your quarterback, I mean, I've I've, I've spent time with guys in franchises who don't have their quarterback, and it's miserable. And it's until you have your quarterback everything's afloat. I mean, it's just, it's all just kind of temporary until you have your quarterback and the bears have been in that world for a while and they're ready to get out of it. Here was fields, highly, highly touted prospect. And in many people's boards, the second best quarterback in the draft. So I I have a, I have a hard time criticizing that one too much. All right. I want to tee up a conversation that I'm going to have to roll out of here, but Adi had a terrifically interesting conversation with Daryl Morey yesterday for your conference, Eric. So why don't you guys talk about the, the conversation? It was a delightful half hour. I'm sure we can point people to that or even maybe get it onto the show at some point. But Sixers president, Daryl Morey, um, blessed the University of Pennsylvania in the analytics conference. So Adi and Eric, I'd love to hear you guys talk about that a little bit. Yeah, Adi. So um, can you just tell us about the interview you had with Daryl? And, uh, you know, can you tell us some of the questions you asked him and why you chose to ask those yeah, questions and what his thoughts were? I, I did. So actually, it was a collaborative process. I went to some of our, our, our uh, undergraduates who work with us in Wasabi um, to kind of, you know, throw together what they would love to hear Dara Mori answer. Um, that's always a tricky part about doing an interview, particularly with an actual working president of baseball, of, of basketball operations, because, you know, they keep these things pretty close to the vest. So the question that, you know, the first question that we began with, um, was motivated by the idea that, you know, Daryl Morey was really the guy who brought the three-point and the small ball, the, the open play, all that basketball revolution. He made it happen over the years he was with the Rockets. Um, it was, and, and the, the question, the first question I asked you, he told a wonderful, uh, gave a wonderful answer was, 
what took so long? I mean, we've talked about this on our show for so long. Three is 50% more than two. <laughs> and the fall off and the fall off in basketball percentage success rate is not that rapid. It's, and so this is, and so, so Daryl Morey actually filled in some details. He said, even back in the, in the, you know, 25 years ago, players knew that when you shot from about, you know, the mid range, you were about as likely to make it in as you were when you were 22 feet back. And that's maybe 10% worse. And that is just not that much different to ignore the fact that you're getting 50% more points. And so the question, you know, I, that I asked him was, why did it take 20 years from to actually start shooting way more three-pointers that, that is now, of course, you know, dominating the league? And his answer was almost what you expected, but a little bit illuminating, which was, you're, imagine these players their entire lives devoting to play a certain style of basketball. Right. Get close to the rim, get close to the rim, the whole process. And you don't just become a professional basketballer one afternoon. You've been doing this your whole lives. The coaches have been doing this their whole lives. The whole structure and design strategy and development of basketball players was completely geared towards shooting close to the basket. You just can't turn that ship around. That's, it's, it's very interesting that you say that. And as you know, it took not just him, but I mean, a coach in Mike D'Antoni, who was willing mm-hmm. to say, you know, we're going to take 40, 50 threes a game. Half of our shots are going to be threes. Right. I mean, as you I know, mean, taking I mean, one extra three is not going to have much of an effect size. You've got to take a lot more threes. But he also, he actually also credited in some respect the data teams that essentially convincingly showed how much more efficient and how much more effective a team as was scoring when they do this. And then, of course, he credited owners willing to invest in in um, and giving the, the latitude and, and constructing teams where they would implement these radical stri- new changes in strategy. Do you think a natural implication of this? Did he talk at all or what, what would your even if he didn't, what were your thoughts? Does it have implications for the draft? Like, do you think you can just draft like I always think of the guy that's on the bull, that was on the Bulls, who's now an announcer, Tim Legler. You know, guy could mm-hmm. shoot threes. Steve Kerr, the coach of the Warriors. He can't really play great basketball, but wow, that guy can shoot threes. Do you think Daryl would support the idea of some guy you knew couldn't play much defense? Um, You can't put him out there for 35 minutes a game, but 10 or 15 minutes, this person can shoot 35 to 40% from threes. Draft them, get them. Maybe, although uh, quite honestly, I'm not convinced you can predict what, how well someone's going to shoot threes at the, at the professional level based on what you've seen in college or even earlier. So that's the, that's the, the question. You that think I that extra three have. feet on shooting makes that much of a difference and or the, the, the length of defenders and the speed of the defenders? Yeah, I think it's been, look, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, uh, it's just hard to predict who's going to be excellent at, at shooting three pointers. Didn't the, the Sixers draft someone who's supposed to be good at three point shooting and turned out to be a disaster um, not too long ago. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's just a tough game. Although I would argue that it would be a good, potentially a good thing to do. But the second, you know, the, the follow-up question that I asked Daryl was um, if the three-point shot was the major innovation and major inefficiency that was exploited of the last generation, the last 10 years, what's the next one? And I was surprised he was going to give an answer to that because that's, that's almost like I, you always have to ask a question. Am I really going to get an answer or, or is he going to talk around it, right? Um, and 
we actually got an answer. And the answer was, maybe not surprising to you, wholly new to me, also connected to the expected value. It turns out that when uh, offensively, when the team shoots a basket, they have to commit uh, their own members of the, the offensive team to either you know, crash the boards and try to recover the, um, the basket and with a rebound yep. or, you know, split the, the, the offense and have some be at the boards and others kind of stand back to prevent a fast break. Right. The traditional and, line uh, of thinking is you don't have more than two. In other words, three maybe go forward, but you have to have at least two men back. That's the traditional line of thinking. And he essentially said that that traditional line of thinking needs to be far more flexible far more dependent on strategies and schema and where people are standing. And ultimately, and this was the point, you got to crash the boards more. That, the, that people are way too concerned about that maximal loss and they want to minimize that maximal loss of uh, the, break, the fast break instead of thinking the much more likely event, which is um, there's not going to be a fast event, that's fast break, that's probably still even unlikely. And the opportunity to get the rebound has enormous benefit. And so he says an expected value, um, this, we, they are overly conservative and you've got to send more players forward. What about the argument, uh, and I agree with him, what about the argument then, therefore, that a good, the best defense is a good offense? Like in other words, if I bring three or four guys forward, the other team's got to keep three or four guys forward, then they won't be able to just draft, you know, run back, run, run on the offensive side, right? Potentially. So, but one thing he, he Daryl, really appreciated, he said it is far more sophisticated analysis to figure this stuff out mathematically because of so many moving parts. Unlike the three-point observation, he said it's just not something to just easily uh, put together. He also alluded that there's a third inefficiency that they're exploiting that he's keeping close to the vest because it will be a Philadelphia 76ers secret. <laughs> All right. So besides, let's call it expected points in basketball, did you guys talk about other stuff? Like what were the other kinds of questions you asked him about? Well, you know, so we, we, one of the things we talked about was, uh, was the home field advantage, um, what they're learning from these high-tech uh, apparatuses that, want, that you could potentially buy to measure sleep and training and, 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 and load management. Um, he dissed a lot of that data. He essentially said that there just doesn't seem to be any good data that suggests this stuff works. He's not saying it doesn't work, but the data is small sample size, commercially um, produced, really not, not uh, uh, so trustworthy. Um, but uh, he basically um, did not have much to say about that stuff right now. Um, anyway, the, 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 but he did say that sleep is very important and that they are definitely taking that into account in their, in their travel schedules and their resting schedules. And that's something that there's something that they are definitely doing. Um, Home field advantage, I asked him specifically because I've been tracking home field advantage with the Sixers for the last few years. They seem to stick out as home field advantage is there across all teams. I think I even remember last year they were the best team in the NBA at home, and I don't even think they had a 500 record on the road last year. Yes, and this year, again, they're great, great, great at home, and even the year before that. They seem to be remarkably good at home. He didn't seem to think that that was anything other than chance variation. Just throw it out. And that's a, you know, he gave me an answer and it was a, it was a good answer. I mean, he j- basically said there's just not enough sample size. All teams are better on the, on the, at home. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Load management, maybe, a, maybe their players tend to play a little harder. Actually, that was actually another, another digression, not necessarily a direction. He talked about 
one of the things that's really the, the uh, he, he, he kind of put into scale the relative size effect sizes of various different aspects of coaching basketball. And he essentially said that the analytics piece might be a win, win and a half, but getting a player to play harder <laughs> and really give their all and be as good as they can be, particularly in basketball are many times the effects. And when you say a win and a half, do you mean across the entire season? That's right. And you're saying just getting the players to play harder in some sense is worth more than that. And he's saying of orders of magnitude. Orders of magnitude. Do you think there'll be a day where, maybe he spoke about this, do you think there'll be a day where motion tracking and stuff can measure how hard someone plays? And, you know, I know what the person's top end speed is because I've measured it. And I measure, I can see how hard, you know, I forget what my eye says about whether the person runs back. I have the data that suggests whether you've run back or not. Does, does he, and, you know, in some sense, you know, imagine coaches could now observe that and, you know, pull people that aren't quote unquote playing hard. I think it's inevitable. You're going to get a, I think you're, inevitably we're going to get a score, which is going to be crappy. But there's going to come out that's sort of a, an intensity score. And eventually that score will be more refined and more accurate. And you're, you bet you're going to get something like that. Because if, you could, if your eye can see it, you can code it up, create a structure to set out of it, and create something quantifiable. Well, let me ask you uh, one last topic in the last few minutes we have. And this is uh, Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. And I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. Some combination of us, Shane Jensen and Cade Massey, are here every week talking here on, well, podcast version of Sirius XM 132. Um, one last piece I wanted to talk to you about is, I believe he, you talked to him about the hot hand. And you I know did. me. I'm Mr. Hot Hand, uh, not just from a being a guy that's played basketball his whole life. Sometimes the basket's as big as an ocean, but, you know, I believe in momentum. And I've written a paper with a former Ph.D. student in statistics, Yao Zhang, on clumpiness, which is essentially the hot hand effect. And my claim is it exists. It's just it's not a massive effect. And most measures have extremely low statistical power, hard to actually detect it. What were Daryl's thoughts on the hot hand? Well, he knew he knew the data. He knew the um, which is great. Uh, he knew the the observation that goes back to uh, Gewurz and Twersky that in the field, when players start making baskets uh, repeatedly, they tend to take harder shots, which creates a, a, an anti-hotness that isn't caused by hotness, but caused by changing shot distributions. And that when they miss shots in, in a row, they tend to start taking easier shots. So he understood that data. He did point out that 90% of the players in it believe in it strongly. And so they will um, shuffle the board, the, sorry, the ball to, uh, to the, the hot player because they all believe in the hot hand. Um, what his personal take was, uh, he's with you, with, with you, Eric. He's in your camp. It, he believes in hotness. Not, it's not as mighty as you think, um, but it's definitely real. It's not as common as you think, but he certainly um, puts his, his, uh, his, uh, his uh, money in the hot hand basket. And, and I kind of forced him. I was, I mean, it was fun. I said, you're going to have to give me a yes and no before you get out of here. And those words were yes. Well, let me ask you in the last two minutes we have here, do you think better data will allow us to finally resolve this issue? Meaning we'll get, it's not about making or missing the basket. It's about the expected number of points for a given shot 
at a given location. And now I can look at residuals. Like you should have made it, you know, 40% of the time. You made it 50% of the time. doesn't seem like you're hot, but that's statistically hot to have a string of positive residuals. Do you think data will help us solve this? Well, I can't disagree that it won't help, but I don't know if I, I, I you know, because I'm definitely not in the, in the, I'm probably a little bit less as enthralled by the idea of hotness than, than you, you are, Eric. Although as a former baseball player, I, I can testify that boy, was I hot sometimes and cold other times. So there, I certainly felt it. Um, so I'm not sure. I think the real issue is that hot players are rare and hot events are also rare. And, and there's, there's also fundamental station, uh, non-stationarity. So maybe if we can model that, um, you know, I think we'll get better data. I think we'll be able to get what approximates um, independent, identically distributed residuals. And yep. that will certainly um, uh, create a better baseline for measuring it. I think, as you know, even if the hot hand exists, the question is, um, you probably can't predict it. And as we say in marketing, if I can't influence it, then it's great to know. But like in marketing, we say, well, I'll give you a discount coupon. Maybe that'll make you have the hot hand towards my product. But if I can't pull a lever and make it happen, then it's nice to know, but it's not there. No, but I mean, listen, if you think about it, if, the, if there's a player that's hot, give them the ball, well, right? Uh, that's a well, big deal. Uh, when I become a coach, that's going to be my plan. So this has been the first half of Morton Moneyball. Uh, this is Eric Brother, and I'm here with my co-host, Adi Weiner. Please stay with us and join us after the You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School. Uh, some combination of myself, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, and Cade Massey are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball. Again, we're doing the podcast version, but soon enough, don't worry, we will be back in the uh, we'll be back in our studio doing it live. Um, this is one of those unique situations where I'm here by myself for the next uh, third quarter before we have our guest, Corey Quawick from the uh, analytics for the Ravens. But good news is there's a lot of interesting sports going on, a lot of things that caught my eye in sports, which I can talk to you, the listener, about. And um, if you want to tweet at us, like you agree with me, don't agree with me, um, tweet, tweet at us during the week. We're at W Moneyball, at W Moneyball. I'm very active on it. Um, and I'll respond. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what I want to talk about. So let's start with the first one. This is obviously this last weekend was the first leg, if you'd like, as they say, of the uh, Triple Crown. It was the Kentucky Derby. Um, what I found interesting was that essential quality, which was the favorite. And first, the first thing that caught my eye was I remember the last four or five years, the favorite for the Kentucky Derby has been something like two to five or three to five, meaning the probability in some sense is greater than a half, according to the betting odds that this horse would win. Well, essential quality was the favorite and was somewhere between two to one and five to two, which means they were giving it at most a 30 percent. 30% or so probability of winning turned out essential quality finished fourth. Now, that may not seem, well, the horse was going to win and finished fourth. That's actually not very good at all. And it turns out um, Medina Spirit, that the horse that had been trained by Bob Baffert, won the race and was 13 to 1. And so a question I know I'm going to ask uh, Jeff Cedar, who's our, our horse expert, on, next time he's on, when we maybe talk about the Belmont or the, Pre or the, so the Preakness next and the Belmont, 
is how much are trainer and jockey effects? Because this is a horse trained by Bob Baffert. I think I have this right, that Bob Baffert horses have now won the Kentucky Derby seven times, which is just an absolute extraordinary number. I believe uh, Velasquez was the uh, jockey and is now one win away from having the most Kentucky Derby wins of any jockey. And so maybe it is... I'll take the fast horse over the slow horse every time. But maybe given the amount of uncertainty, we should think about the tiebreaker, which is the trainer and the jockey. So I found it fascinating that the favorite horse, there were three statistical takeaways for me from the Kentucky Derby. First, the favorite horse before the race wasn't that much of a favorite as we had seen in past years. That's interesting. The second thing was that the favorite horse finished fourth, which is not very good for the favorite horse. And then the third thing, of course, is the horse that won, was, which was 13 to 1, maybe we shouldn't have been so surprised, given it was a Bob Baffert horse and a Velasquez uh, riding the horse. So that was fun. And of course, you know, the good thing about the Kentucky Derby is the winner of the Kentucky Derby can still win the Triple Crown. And I think all of you know, you know, with the Preakness coming next, if uh, Medina Spirit doesn't win the Preakness, then the interest in it goes down. But that was that was a fun race. Um, I haven't actually seen the split time, but I haven't heard anybody suggest it was one of the faster times. And I think I, I say this every year in awe of Secretariat, the greatest horse that ever lived. Secretariat still to this day holds the fastest time at all three of the Triple Crown races. And that was 1973. So we've had 48 years and no one still at any of those tracks has beaten Secretariat's time, which is absolutely amazing. So that was one thing that caught my eye. Um, the second thing that caught my eye in sports, which was an interesting is, um, and I'm always about what I call continuous age curves, which is here's a fight I never thought I would see again. So many of you that are my age know a very famous fight between Mike Tyson and Lennox Lewis, which was in the early 2000s. Well, they're actually fighting again. And so they're actually going to fight again. Uh, I think I forget one of them's 56. Let's say that's Mike Tyson, or maybe it's Lennox Lewis. The other one's 58. Um, I have to admit, I don't know why, but I'm going to find this fight extraordinarily interesting. Now, I do remember the Tyson fight. A lot of you are probably saying, is Eric nuts? Didn't he watch the Tyson-Roy uh, Jones Jr. fight? I did. Weren't they? Didn't he say on the air at Wharton Moneyball that these guys were tired? It looked like at the end of the first round. Absolutely. But I don't know why, but I just think these kind of rematch fights will be really interesting. It'll be interesting to see. You know, my view is I'd rather take the bigger man. If those who don't remember, while Tyson is 5'10", 220, 225, Lennox Lewis is a beast of a man. And so, you know, at the end of the day, um, you can't teach height and you can't teach size. So given both of them are slower, personally, I believe in the bigger, heavier guy just leaning on Mike Tyson for six rounds, eight rounds. And they call us an exhibition, but you know how it's going to go the minute they're actually in there. And so I'm just wondering, you know, at some point, you know, it's not even about sanctioning the fight, but at some point, you know, a 56-year-old, people say, well, what about George Foreman? George Foreman was in his early to mid-40s when he won the title against Michael Moore. He was not 56 or 58 years old. But, of course, one of the things we talk about a lot here on Moneyball is how it varies by sport. So as an example, um, 
we all, you know, I remember like yesterday when Tom Watson almost won the British Open at age 59. He missed a seven-foot putt. And this is when Stuart Sink, who I just talked about last week, who have won, has won two tournaments this year, beat him in extra holes. So I, I think we all believe in um, golf. Someone could probably – there will be a day where a 55-, 60-year-old wins the Masters or the British Open, etc. I think we agree in tennis that's unlikely to happen – Although, you know, people remember, well, in my view, he's a reprehensible person. I remember as a kid when Bobby Riggs um, played Margaret Court. And, um, you know, people forget. I mean, people always remember the match against Billie Jean King, but he had already won the match against the number. Billie Jean King was not the number one player in the world. And so while I disagree with so much about Bobby Riggs, he was in his mid to late 50s, was a four-time Wimbledon champion and, and won a match in that in that age and so to me there's such a few sports i mean another thing we saw is i remember as a kid in swimming when um uh when uh spinks uh spitz sorry mark spitz came back and i think he actually uh swam uh against michael phelps and they gave him like some sort of advantage but like he was 40 at the time and maybe phelps was in his early 20s so i'm always interested in these age matchups in sports i think boxing is not a sport that ages well i think golf is a sport that ages well i think tennis there is a senior tennis tour but nobody wants to see john McEnroe play you know novak djokovic today i don't think that would be a particularly good match but it's always interesting to think about age curves and and at what point in time like if I told you Lennox Lewis and Mike Tyson were in their 40s you'd probably give them a puncher's chance maybe against one of the boxers today but over 50 seems like no so that was another thing that kind of caught my eye in sports um let me turn a little bit to baseball um because I went to my first baseball game in about a year and a half um I was at the Yankees game on Sunday the Yankees played the Tigers um there are a lot of things notable about the game Um, The first part is, and this is one of the things I'm very, very interested in seeing how it plays out throughout the season, is that we have, you know, 30 different teams and each of them have a different policy on the size of the crowd, which means maybe instead of this idea that home field advantage is on off, like you have home field or you don't, maybe now we'll have a continuous measure because imagine a plot. Where on the x-axis, you have the number of fans or the percentage of fans that are in the stadium. And on the y-axis, you have the winning percentage. Maybe we'll see an interesting curve. Like at the Yankee game I was at, Yankee Stadium, I think, seats 55, 56,000. They never announced the attendance, which is strange. It's probably the first baseball game I've ever been to where they didn't announce the attendance. There couldn't have been more than three or 4,000 people at the stadium. And so imagine a curve, and that's basically like 5 or 6%. Imagine a curve that goes from zero to 100% attendance. That's on the x-axis. On the y-axis, we have the uh, winning percentage. And now we can actually look in some continuous way on the effect of home field. So that was one thing that struck me about the game. Obviously, I was quite happy that the Yankees won the game. The other thing that struck me, and again, please tweet at us at, at WMoneyBall if you know the distribution of time lengths of baseball games. But this game was officially in two hours and 14 minutes. Now, it was a nine-inning game, so it wasn't the game ended early. Um, the thing that happened was, uh, I think the Yankees might have had three hits, and maybe the Tigers had two hits. Um, they only changed pitchers each team once, and both these pitchers, every time they got the ball back, they were ready to pitch. I have to admit, I didn't feel shortchanged for my money. I didn't feel like, wow, I paid this money to go to a game, and it was only two hours and 14 minutes. Um, 
So the things that caught my eye there were, number one, are we going to learn something about the role of home field um, and the size of home field? And the second thing was just um, it is possible to play a baseball game in a short amount of time, and in this case, two hours and 14 minutes. So that was kind of an interesting uh, game as well. And also the other thing that was interesting about it was – you know, just it seemed like the Tigers were way overmatched in this game. And not surprisingly, they are the worst team in baseball. I think after Sunday's game, they were something like 8-21. and 21. And even though the game got the Yankees just back to 500 at 14-14, and 14, you can imagine if these two teams played 100 times, the Yankees are winning 80% of those games. It, it's just, and I'm making up the number 80%, but it's not 50-50. Well, any, on any given day, yeah, on any given day, they play 100 games, the Yankees are winning 80 of those games. And uh, the Tigers are in for a long season. Um, but we'll see. Both teams, by the way, have anemic hitting. I think the highest, I think the highest uh, batting average on anybody might have been LeMahieu on the Yankees, who was hitting 270 or 80, which is terrible for him. The Yankees had four or five guys, uh, had four or five guys batting below uh, 200, and so did the Tigers. The Tigers might have had five or six guys uh, below 200. So it was just an anemic set of hitting. And matter of fact, it also relates to something else. I don't know if everybody saw it, but the Mets did something interesting. Um, They actually fired, after 20-something games, they fired their hitting coach and the assistant hitting coach. And because the Mets, you know, it's not just for DeGrom that they're not hitting for. They were hitting terribly. As a matter of fact, something Adi told me before he left the air today was make sure you talk about the fact that batting average is like the lowest it's been in like 40 years. So it's extremely, I mean, again, runs aren't that much down, which is interesting. You know, it's jack the ball out of the park or strike out, but batting averages are way, way down, which makes it even more remarkable. Just adding my last fact about some something about baseball I was saying there is, I think Mike Trout is hitting way, way over 400. And so maybe 410, 415. So despite the fact that the averages are really low, um, somebody in this case, Mike Trout, I, I mean, he's hitting over 400. His OPS is like 1.3. So there still are great hitters out there. The other thing that caught my eye when I got back from the game, I was so happy the Yankees were at 500. This was after Sunday. I didn't look in yesterday, but, um, something else that caught my eye was that, um, I looked at the standings of people in the AL East and I noticed that they were only separated top to bottom by three losses. So now I started to wonder to myself, well, so if I had to forecast the max minus the min number of losses in the AL East by the end of the year, how would I do it? Like, for example, if they've played a fifth of the season and the current gap is three losses, would I just multiply the number by five and say 15 losses? Like, I'll make this up. Maybe the Yankees go 90 and 72. Maybe the worst team goes 75 and 87. Can I literally just linearly extrapolate? And here's my view. I think the answer is no, but here's my logic. But I'm sure all of the people that we have on the air can correct me if I'm wrong. I think the top team right now in the AL East is regressed in a little bit. I think the bottom team is regressed up a little bit. And by the end of the year, even though I I still expect some mean reversion, I expect greater separation. I would be very, very surprised if the top to the bottom AL East is only 15 games. But it is an interesting mental exercise, which is, you know, by the way, most things in life 
aren't that bad. Most statistical properties in life aren't that bad if you make the assumption of linearity. In other words, you might be wrong, but you're not going to be so wrong that you should say to yourself, wow, Eric Bradlow's being an idiot by just taking, well, they've played a fifth of the games. There's three losses from top to bottom multiplied by five. I think it's just the opposite. I think you go with linearity until there's evidence to suggest there's non-linearity here. And so 15 is not a bad thing. If you ask me for a confidence interval, I'm probably going to put 15 at my lower bound and I'll put 20 to 22 maybe at the upper bound, but it's going to be kind of somewhere in that range. And I actually noticed there were a lot of divisions where there was nobody that had run away with a division. I know it's hard to run away with a division if you've only played 30 games, because if you win 60% of your games, you're 18 and 12. If another team wins 40 game, 40%, they're 12 and 18. That's only a six game gap. And that might be one way to think about it. Three losses difference from high to low is basically, you know, a 60% team and a 40% team would get you to six. So this isn't that shockingly low. It just shocked me as being, you know, kind of a pretty small number. So it was good to be back out there and watch baseball. It was good to see a quick game. And of course, for me, it was good to see the Yankees win. Um, I know in quarter one and a little bit of quarter, or quarter two, a little bit, sorry, quarter two, we talked a little bit about the draft. There was one thing as a Buccaneers fan that did catch me. Uh, another thing that uh, I noticed about the draft, which is the Bucks in the second round selected Kyle Trask out of Florida. Now, what a lot of people don't know is I think Kyle Trask had the highest QBR in the NCAA last year. And the other thing that was interesting is he was the sixth quarterback taken, which means in some sense, I, I know it's not discontinuous in this way, but you could make an argument. I mean, the Bucks picked the top quarterback of the second tier. In other words, once the Jags had taken Trevor Lawrence, once the Jets had taken Zach Wilson, once the Niners had taken Trey Lance, once the Chicago Bears had taken Justin Fields, and once the Patriots had taken uh, Mac Jones, then... Anybody could have taken a next quarterback. First, it didn't go for about 50 more picks, which is interesting because you would argue, is Mac Jones really that much better than Kyle Trask that there's a 50 pick gap between them? But then secondly, you can make an argument with a late second round pick, the Bucks selected a quarterback who, you know, who was uh, the number one quarterback according to QBR? And you know, this is what I've, I've told this saying many times um, on the air about one of my favorite quotes as a kid, and you'll see why it relates to Kyle Trask. Was when they, uh, you know, they were doing training camp for the Houston Oilers, and uh, my favorite running back as a kid, Earl Campbell, couldn't run a mile. And matter of fact, they tried to have him run a mile, and he just couldn't do it. And when they asked Bum Phillips, the coach, what are you going to do about Earl Campbell that can't run a mile? And he goes, next time it's third down and a mile, I won't give the ball to Earl Campbell. And it just reminded me of Bruce Arians' response when they asked him, well, Kyle Trask isn't that mobile. And he goes, he's playing quarterback, right? We pay our quarterback to throw the football not to run the football. And so they were thrilled to get Kyle Trask in the second round. And then I remember, I don't remember exactly his name, but I know there was a quarterback from Stanford. I know Texas A&M, there was Kellen Mond, which was drafted after that. So the Bucks could have taken the Stanford quarterback, who a lot of people thought highly of, could have taken the Texas A&M one. In some sense, they won the second tier of quarterbacks in the draft in their mind. I'm not saying it's going to turn out that way, but if you had told them we could get the first pick of the second tier that's something else that uh, caught me in the draft um 
let me turn a little bit in my last few minutes here uh, to the NBA, um, because there's a lot of interesting things going on in the NBA. One that caught my eye, which maybe they were prophetic, and it's why you can't just look at wins and losses. About a week ago, the Sixers were, I think, two games back in the loss column to the Brooklyn Nets, who held the one spot. Except if you looked at the power index, they actually had the Sixers as over 50% of taking the number one spot on the East. Now, obviously, it was due to the matchups to whom the Sixers had left and the Nets had left. And maybe they were prophetic in the sense that right now the Sixers are the number one spot in the East. Um, I think they're up one game on the Nets, and I don't know who has the tiebreaker, but if the Sixers do have the tiebreaker with only six or seven games left, this is actually a fairly large advantage. And so now I'm starting to think the Sixers might have the number one uh, number one spot in the East. Now you say, well, what difference does that make? Well, Adi just uh, in our second quarter, Adi talked about his interview with Daryl Morey. If these, if that's a three-point advantage, that could be enough to give the Sixers a 54-46 or 53-47 advantage. I know that doesn't, look, we'd all love it to be 60-40, but I'd rather play a seven-game series with a 55 to 53% chance of winning each game. And I've always also been one of those strong believers that the role players play much better at home than they do on the road. And if you're also a believer in sleep, if you're also a believer in, you know, just the crowd noise, if you're also a believer in the effect of the referees, all of those can significantly play a role. And so, again, um, I think it's very interesting that the Sixers might be the one spot in the East. But there's also a lot of other interesting things going on. Um, the Lakers and the Celtics. So the Lakers, being last year's champion, may end up being a play-in team. And just to remind everybody the way it's going to work, the sec- only the top six teams, historically eight teams in each conference made it. One played eight, two played seven, and so on. This year it's going to be such high variance because the top six teams all guarantee themselves spots, but then seven plays eight. If whoever wins that game gets the seven spot, the loser of that game plays the winner of the nine, 10 game. The loser of the nine, 10 game is out. So the Lakers, the Lakers may end up being the seven or eight seed in the West, which means one game and done. They may end up playing or, in this case, two games and done because they'd have two chances. They could lose the 7-8 game, but win the game 8 versus 9 and 10. But they could end up with a one-game playoff for their entire season where many of us had the Lakers as the favorites. Now, I understand LeBron's been injured. AD's been injured. Dennis Schroeder appears to be on COVID protocol. They're having all kinds of challenges. And the same is true with the Celtics. The Heat are near the bottom of the East. We may end up with a season where, you know, in some sense, the replication from season to season Season might be quite low. You know, um, you know, the Lakers uh, may not be in the finals or even in the East Western Conference finals. The same might be true of the Heat. The same may be true of the Celtics. We may have entirely different teams. All of a sudden, the Lakers, uh, the Bucks, all of a sudden they're looking good. I've not been a strong believer in Utah or Phoenix, but you know, at some ways, you have to start believing that they're playing well during the regular season is absolutely worth something. So I think we have a very interesting NBA playoffs coming up, and we could end up with some ridiculously powerful matchups. Another thing that may end up happening, because of the run that Steph Curry is on, for the Warriors, um, they're in the, I think it's the eighth spot right now in the West. Are you telling me you want to play a Steph Curry-led team in one game? 
This guy could drop 50 on you. He could drop 60 on you. So imagine you're the Lakers and you end up having to play the Warriors in a one game, when I say winner take all, winner take all to be the eighth spot to face Utah or Phoenix. But I wouldn't have that much confidence that the Lakers, who are never going to be fully healthy by that time, would actually beat the Warriors. So, you know, this may be one of those seasons where people that took longish odds on bets at the beginning of the season, you know, we always talk about the NBA tends to go chalk. Well, I don't think this is one of those seasons where it's going to go chalk. Matter of fact, if even if you look at the Yankees right now in baseball and the Dodgers in baseball, all those people that were saying 95 wins for the Yankees, 102 wins for the Dodgers, right now you'd have to take the under. I'm not saying it's not going to be. And I think you'd have to say, you know, if you bet the favorites at the beginning of the season, the Lakers and the Clippers in the, in the, in the West, and let's say the, I don't know, the Bucks and the Nets in the East, you can't guarantee that at all. And matter of fact, one of the things we love talking about here on Wharton Moneyball is how many teams would it take you to take them versus the field? Well, I'm not even sure the number of teams right now, and I'm definitely not sure even which teams of those that I would pick. So that's the real challenge here. It's not just the number. I know I'd need at least three or four. I'd need at least six teams to take them versus the field, but I'm not even sure how certain I would be about what those six teams would be. I think it's just a crazy season. It'll be fun to track here on Wharton Moneyball, and it'll be fun to track, you know, in some sense, comparing the preseason guesses to the postseason guesses. So this has been the third quarter here on Wharton Moneyball. If you want to agree or disagree with anything I've said during this last 25, 30 minutes by myself, please tweet at us at at WMoneyball. Um, we have a great guest in our fourth quarter, Corey Quarick from the Ravens. He'll be talking about the analytics and the decisions they have to make. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We're rolling into the last half hour, the last quarter here. This has become our interview segment. We are delighted to welcome onto the show for the first time. I'm not sure how we've gone this long without talking to Corey, but we get Corey for the first time. Corey Craywick. Corey is manager of player evaluation and analytics at your Baltimore Ravens. Corey, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Thank you. Yeah. Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> well, we need to fix that going forward, but we're glad to get the first one um, underway. So Corey, obviously a fun time of year for, those of us on the outside watching the draft, you're on the inside very much. And you guys build, you're, you're in the personnel side of the building and you build towards this all year. How was the weekend for you? Did you have fun? Was it anxiety inducing? Like what, what was it broadly speaking as an emotional experience for you? Yeah, it's, it's quite a few days, you know, you spend almost the whole year building up to these three days. And then like the day of it's a lot of kind of waiting for 8 PM to get here. So there's that nervous excitement. Uh, this year was a lot more fun than last year because people were back around the building. I mean, you could see it on the, the draft coverage of TV that people were back in the draft rooms and just there's an electricity in the building every year for the right. draft and you could feel it again. And it was, it was really cool. That's so much fun. How, I, how do you all think about evaluating teams? I mean, you, you must, do you just laugh at all the grades that are given teams around the, you know, Mel Kuyper writes his column and people say, well, this doesn't mean anything, but by God, let me read it all. How do you think about evaluating teams? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I think in a lot of ways that the grading of drafts is a, a good representation of process versus outcome thinking, right? Like 
some people will say you can't grade a draft until three years later, but then you're inherently grading it on the results of the draft. And so right. then you, you try to grade it or what pe- it seems people do is they try to grade it based on the picks that are made. But I've seen a bunch of studies about how those are not at all predictive of who actually had a good draft. I think what tends to happen is a lot of the outside sources will look at a draft and be like, Oh, they took a player that I liked. Therefore it was a good pick. (laughs) They took a player that I didn't like. It was a bad pick or some will do. These are consensus rankings. They took a player earlier than consensus rankings thought they should bad pick. And and that's what it usually comes down to grading wise. So, I mean, it's fun content to read, but it's, it's just an interesting kind of, maybe unsolvable problem. Well, you make a, you're making a nice point though, you know, cause it seems like such safe ground to say, ah, you can't evaluate these things for a few years, but you're saying, well, that, you know, in some level that's true, but you're talking about outcome and shouldn't we judge decisions uh, at the point that they're made? I mean, that's a, that's a foundation of good decision-making. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting point. Tell us, do, 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 do guys inside the NFL differentiate between teams or GMs who are perceived to be good player evaluators versus like prudent, um, you know, managers of the draft stock, you know, there's this difference between whether you like you're good with draft capital and managing picks versus you're good at picking players. Is that a distinction that guys within the NFL draw? Well, I think you, you see it a lot in, in press conferences that GMs have, right. They talk about how once you kind of get into that chair, it's more about managing things like the cap and, and assets and all that and, and that kind. So I think, Inherently, that is that is a thing. Um, but for the most part, I think a lot of drafts are looked at as, you know, evaluations, how good are the players, where should we pick them, and that kind of thing. And I think when you kind of see a lot of studies about how good are teams at drafting, there is an element of variance and luck in the actual draft. And if, if you pick one pick higher in a bunch of different rounds, it could be a totally different draft, right? right. So there is that thing that is almost impossible to parse out when you are trying to evaluate how good of a drafter versus how good of an evaluator someone is mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's very nuanced things, especially being on the outside versus the inside, I think. Well, look, you, one, of the, one of the evaluations that gets used more and more these days is more analytical side of things. You guys, I'm sure, have models. Other, some other teams have models anyway. And this is something we struggle with as analysts in all kinds of sports, even outside of sports. How do we get the decision maker to listen to us? So from, from your perspective as an analyst in football, sometimes you're trying to persuade the GM or the, the head of personnel or even a coach to listen to your model. What, what advice do you have for those, the rest of us who are running models and trying to convince folks on how to, how to get that done? Be right. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I mean, it's probably an overly simplistic way to do it. But like, look, we're, I think, in general, safe to say that analytics are more the, the newer kids on the block, right? So when it comes to trying to get people to think differently and change behavior, you, you have to have a track record. You have to build up trust in, in, with your communication style and proving that the kind of things you're using will help make, whether it's better decisions, better um, evaluations, things like that. I think it'd be easier for everyone if like both older and newer school kind of came 50, 50 halfway. But I think when you're the newer one, you got to be more used to going 80 or 90% of the way and just having them come 10 reaching across Mm -hmm. the aisle more. And just, I think trust is the biggest part of it. And you build that trust by working hard and 
being right about things. And, but, mm-hmm. and it's also being right in the right way. It's, what, do you mean? It's, what do you mean by that? It's not about being right and them being wrong, right? Or being right at the expense of other people's opinions. It's being right in conjunction with others and, and not kind of saying that you're inherently wrong because I'm right. Okay, so how do you do that? That sounds complicated. What's an example of what's an example of a way you've seen that done or you've been able to do that before? I think it just comes down to communication scouts with different people, right? Like we all miss. I think, you know, scouts miss, coaches miss, analysts miss. And I think just being being humble about the fact that even us using evidence and, and data and decisions are gonna miss and not trying to act like we're always right either. And just kind of in some ways connecting over our shared misses. And kind of build some of that rapport and help. Um, Corey, that reminds me of a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago with a fellow named Scott Fawcett, who coaches professional golfers. And his whole, his whole thing is you got to know you're going to miss. He's like, I, I'll go out and watch ball placement or, you know, outcomes for, from professional golfers, the best in the world. And there's still a distribution of where they end up, you know? And so whenever they plan on where I'm going to aim for this particular hole, they have to consider that they, they can't guarantee they're going to be on that pin. They may want to be on the pin. They may want to, they may even aim for the pin, but they can't guarantee it's going to happen. And so they have to consider that. It was fascinating to hear him talk about how he's changed golfer's mindset by talking about variance. And it sounds a little bit about the way you're talking about this process. Yeah, I, I listened to that interview too. It was fascinating. I mean, it, it was really cool to hear him talking about different sports that way. And you know, I think on this show or like kind of the analytics community would talk about things like and call it variance. But, you know, you'll hear executives and GMs and people like talk about like how the draft is in some ways a luck driven process a different way. So I think there are different ways to say the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Just acknowledging that, like, you, you know, I don't think anyone's ever going to go 100 percent on all their picks. Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You hope to. You try to. You aim for it. But. But yeah, historically, it's really tough to come by. What, what about just the importance, especially among in, in kind of the analytics group there on how well you understand football? What, and, and can you ever understand it well enough to earn the respect of the guys who maybe played and other guys in the building? What is the importance of understanding football, especially as you build out a team there of analytics folks? Yeah, it's, I think in some ways that does, that depends on the team. If you ask 32 different analytics directors around the league, you might get 30 different answers. I think there's a lot of value in, in diversity of opinion. So like our group, uh, Sarah worked in baseball, Dara, Derek worked in soccer. Um, Charlie, who interned for us a couple of years ago, did wrestling analytics. Mm-hmm. So we've kind of, I came from hockey initially too. So we've got, ours is kind of pretty diverse skill set. I know some teams that will only want people who worked in football so it's more like a preference thing and, and maybe even more used to a specific role. I think as long as you're somebody who wants to learn and, and, and pick things up, that that's what you're really looking for. Um, well, do you, do you, it, have you yeah. seen the benefits, Corey, of bringing like Derek and Sarah, these guys come with really cool experience in a very different sport. Do they ever speak up at the table and say, well, you know, we did it this way. Maybe we can try that approach. You had these, you know, very concrete examples of where, yeah, we, we adopted a, methodology from a different sport because those guys brought it with them uh well i mean one of mine way way back when eight years ago when i first got here coming from hockey was like it, it, and i don't know that this was necessarily super insightful or like helped anything but just kind of i used to do all these reports on power play and penalty kill stuff hockey wise right and then it was kind of like looking at red zone opportunities on offense and defense as like power plays and penalty kills and like 
not that it necessarily changed things we do, but it was a different perspective to look at the same thing you hear over and over. And then maybe that spurs an idea here to like, oh, let's think about, you know, combining the two percentage ways kind of thing. And, and again, not that that super actionable, but it just, it kind of spurs different ways of thinking. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, I think it's fascinating to see some of the stuff that you see out there from, from baseball about like the route efficiency for outfielders and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you look at how you could apply that. And so you have somebody who would work in baseball and you kind of talk through, through how they would do it. Mm-hmm. How far can you take this idea? So if you could hire one, um, if you could add one, one addition to your team, but, but outside of sports altogether, mm-hmm. what, what kind of profession would you add to your team? Two come to mind, uh, but I've had to pick one. I'd probably say a rocket scientist. Okay. That's because yeah. you like SIG. That's because you like SIG. It's, yeah. I'm, I'm totally biased because I'm very good friends with SIG and he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. Uh, SIG from the Orioles. But, and, and also because I think secretly fanboying that if I didn't go into sports, I would have tried to work at NASA because I think that stuff's awesome. But, okay. but just really like if you're somebody who can analyze like orbital mechanics and satellites and landing things on the moon, you can probably help us figure out the spatial relationship between safeties and offensive players and offensive and defensive linemen part of where you're coming from is just the 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 ngs and motion tracking data it's a whole new way of looking at data and so it really would benefit from folks who have had some kind of familiarity with that kind of thinking interesting i can see it yeah yeah but you said you said two two came two came to mind so what what would be the what would be the other one yeah the other one would actually probably be journalists and Yeah, that makes it a little weird, but I think it's because at the end of the day, the most important part of being a good analyst is communication skills, right? No matter how good your models are, no matter how good your work is, if you can't communicate it, it's kind of worthless. And I think so people who have a lot of practice with editing their thoughts, clarifying them, making them concise and easy and communicating them to lots of people is a skill set that's really, really valuable if you want to be successful um, here. Mm-hmm. Does that, Corey, that means you should go to like uh, journalism classes or school or something, right? Does that, is it, it can't just be that only journalists know how to do that. Your whole team could do communication stuff of some kind. Sure. I mean, or, I, if bring I can go in, bring, bring yeah. a journalist in and give them, have a, give a seminar to you guys over the summer. A speaker series kind of thing for sure. Yeah. I think it's, those are good points. I, if I could go back to, to undergrad, I probably would have taken more of those classes and, and, and worked on that a little bit more. But it's just, I just, it, communication is so important, especially with with what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So we're talking to Corey Craywick. Corey is manager of player evaluation and analytics at the Baltimore Ravens. He's been there about seven and a half years. He came over, I think, from the Blackhawks, if I remember correctly, after spending some time sleeping on various couches. He really is the classic story of, of starting at the bottom, and, and now he's got this crazy cool job with a crazy cool organization. The Ravens one of the things we've kicked around here a couple of, maybe a couple of months ago now were these rule changes that they proposed. Everyone was talking about this fun kickoff alternative um, in, in, in uh, for overtime, which did, didn't get rejected, but it didn't exactly get taken up. Corey, you've been in football for a while. If you could change one rule in the NFL, what would it be? Yeah. I mean, I thought the spot and choose proposal was really cool. Uh, with this one, I might go a little off the board and this, this could be for football, but really any, sport that has replay at this point. And, it, you know, I've, I've heard this kind of different versions of this idea bounced around here and there. It's not like originally for me or anything, but I think the easiest way to describe it is the, the blindfolded ref. And basically how it works is whenever you have a replay, what you do is you have somebody who 
is like off to the side with a blindfold and noise canceling headphones on. So they don't know what the call was. They don't know what the score of the game is. They don't know how much time is left in the game. And then it's like, Oh, we have replay to go and watch. So he comes over, you show him the replay and he says what the call is. There's no deferring to the call in the field. There's no other influences. It's just, this is what the call should be. Oh, that's inspired. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I don't think I've ever heard of that before. I mean, in decision-making, we're, we're always looking for independent judgments. In fact, this is something that we talk about with scouting organizations. Like you got to find ways to keep your scouts kind of more independent from one another. There's, there's, you lose the value of having a second scout if the second scout knows the first scout's opinion. But man, we've, I've never thought about it with referees. Well, not the actual referee, no, but the replay official. No, yes, it would of be course. the yeah, of course, yeah, of course, of course. yeah, yeah. There's yeah. no call to defer to if you don't know what it is. I like the fact that you even put in there they don't know the game situation because you're suggesting that game situation influences calls. I mean, not necessarily. I think referees do a fantastic job. I just, I you know, it, it's human nature, right? So like, it's more just like the idea of taking out every single potential bias you could. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So it would be the natural thing to be, would say, okay, now how do you apply that concept to scouting in the NFL? Like what, if you were to, if you're going to do one thing differently about the way teams aggregated their scouts opinions on the same principle, and now I'm trying to get you in trouble with Eric, what, what, what would you do? Take the same principle back to the, back to the war room, Corey. You are trying to get me in trouble. (laughs) Okay, I won't put you on the I won't put you on the hot seat for that one. All right, fair enough. You might have um, already got me in trouble by saying that I think refs are too influenced by score effects, human, like which is not what I was saying. <laughs> I think you, but I think you said it right. I think you said refs are human, and it, I mean, let's design systems for human referees as opposed to some Herculean notion of what they might be. Um, okay, let's 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 do talk about more general because this is the stuff we talk about when we talk about scouting, one of the reasons we get excited about it is it's we, we make these kinds of forecasts all the time in life and we, and we, and hiring, I mean, all the NFL is doing is hiring, right? I mean, we all have had chances to hire people or, or, or at least speculate on the quality of hires that other people have made. Where do you think football analytics can be applied or just analytics applied more generally in life? How, how do you think of it? Or, or do you really think of it as a war room kind of thing? No, I mean, I think the, quote unquote football analytics is, is pretty specific, but the thoughts and the processes underpinning football analytics, you apply to really any decision in life, right? None, none of us want to make bad decisions. And so, so we talk about, you know, analytics in, in some ways is, is a term that I think it's thrown around in a way that's not necessarily doing it justice. Like, Oh, the analytics say to do this or the analytics say to do that when that's not really the case. We're saying the data and the evidence says to do that. Um, another one I think you'll hear a lot is that, that analytics is a, is a tool, right? And I, I don't necessarily love that analogy because like you, you think of tools, like they have a specific purpose, right? Like what are tools? A hammer is a tool, a screwdriver is a tool. Some people might say I'm a tool, but just like <laughs> in general, like, okay, if you have to pound in a nail, you'll get a hammer. If you have to screw in a screw, you'll get a screwdriver. But like, so to say like, oh, analytics are a tool, you're kind of implying it's very limited in scope and what you can do. But really what it is, is, is a framework, to try to use data and evidence to help you try to make better decisions. How, that's interesting. And um, what, what, how would you describe that framework? If you're going to, if you're going to claim that it's something that general, like, what does it, what does it mean? 
What is the analytics framework? I think it's just, look, data and information is not statistics, right? I think statistics and analytics get confused a lot. And it's just putting in place a set of steps to help you kind of focus the way you're thinking about things. And whether that's including data, including human judgment, you know, I think scouts do an incredible job identifying football players and traits and things like that that they do. And it's just trying to come up with a way to, to weigh things and eliminate some of the biases that we have inherent to us as humans. Mm-hmm. I think that's consistent with the way many folks talk about Moneyball and general. like, what is Moneyball? It's, it's really just kind of evidence-based decision-making, you know, especially in the face of conventional wisdom. We're just going to go with, with the data. And there's this other piece I think you're saying, which is um, what are data anyway? I mean, data is just history. It's like, we're not telling you what the computer says or what the algorithm says. We're just telling you what happened historically. That's literally what this is. I mean, sometimes there's more to it than that, but often there isn't more than that. And have you seen, I mean, is that helpful rhetoric? Is it, is it, have you ever seen it make a difference to talk about as like, well, history, you know, historically, this is a pattern as opposed to here comes the computer guy to tell us what his model says. Yeah. I think that gets back to what we're talking about, like being right is is the important thing is it's like showing examples, right? Like it's one thing to, to give your answers or suggestions in numbers, but people connect to stories a lot more than they connect to numbers. Mm -hmm. So you take those numbers and you weave a narrative around it. It's much more compelling and persuasive than that. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, comes from history. Is it hard as an analyst, Corey, is it hard for you to start talking about weaving narratives? I mean, you, you kind of, you kind of got that beat out of your system, right? You did an MBA at Notre Dame. You were trained to, to look at data. And, and as an analyst, you're like, you're told to be skeptical of stories. And then when it comes to selling your data, now you're saying, well, you kind of need to tell a story. Yeah. Well, I think that's why I, I said earlier, I would, I would go with a journalist because at the end of the day, like telling a story is still the most effective way to communicate. Now, mm-hmm. I, I, like we talked about, like a lot of maybe older stories are, are rooted in bad data or misunderstandings. So I think it's, I think that's why you have to have analysts that you really trust because you can make data say a lot of different things, mm-hmm. all depending on the way you frame it. The same information can say two completely opposite things depending on, on how you present it. So it's, it's, I think it's, in some ways it's be, become an interesting challenge for me to kind of get back to like, okay, we've taken some of the old narratives away of the storytelling. Now we get down to the data and the information and looking at it. And now let's build back a compelling narrative helping us going forward. Mm-hmm. Here's one of the most challenging narratives you can try to work on, Corey. Here's a, here's a long-term assignment for you. It's how can you tell a story about that? We're, we were talking about noise earlier, variance back to the Scott Fawcett kind of thing, back to the fact that no scout is perfect. Okay, so you're basically talking about variance, which is hard to convey in a compelling way. No, one, no one's interested in variance, you know? So we need a, sto- we need a story. We need, a, we, need, we need to hire the best storytellers, the best journalists to tell us how to talk about variance in a way that's compelling. What's the, what's the narrative that makes variance compelling? See, to me, I thought the, the when you had uh, Scott on that, that was very compelling because it was talking about golf shots and, and, and that it was so different than how I would just talk about it here. It, it's, you know, and maybe I, the thing is like, maybe that version of talking about it doesn't work for everybody, but it works for me. And, and I think that's the other thing to always keep in mind, right? Like your audience is never everyone. It's never scouts. It's never coaches. It's 
the particular scout, the particular coach, the particular executive decision maker, whoever, who you're trying to help understand something. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, listen, um, we're, we're going to come down to the end here in a minute. I want to get a couple more things from you before you go. One is the world in the last year has been quite different than your previous world. How do you feel the Ravens did dealing with COVID restrictions of all kinds? So you had fewer football games played, you had guys opt out, you couldn't get access to players. And without getting into the details, do you feel like y'all were able to do some things to get around that? And more importantly, I suppose, are there some lessons from life in the pandemic that you think are going to stick and change the way you do things going forward? Yeah, I think we did fantastic. I mean, I pinch myself every day that I get to work for this organization. I think I'm one of the luckier analysts in the league that I get to work with Ozzy and Eric and coach and, and everyone here who, who have been really, really successful for a long time. And who, like, if you're looking at it, like somebody who could potentially be not open to this kind of stuff at all would be someone who's been successful. So yeah, you get right. people that smart and that, and that good who are also open to new ways of thinking is kind of like a dream come true. Mm-hmm. So, and I think, yeah, it, so whenever you have new challenges and things like that, I think organizations that are really, really smart and organized and, and, and have a history are, are going to be able to handle it. I think we handled it great. And if, if we're going to talk about like, like kind of lessons learned, I think necessity is the mother of invention, right? And so we had a lot of new constraints this year. And I think that allowed analytics groups probably around the league to kind of shine a little bit because we got to show off creativity and an organization and, and, and new ways of thinking about things. I know, I know our group here did, I'm sure some others around the league did too. And, and well, it, with that, I'm not going to, I'm not going to push you all the way into specifics of what y'all did, but in general, you're talking about some piece of information was missing because of what happened in football last year. And we had to come up with alternative ways to get at something to get that at that information or something like that information. Is that broadly the kind of thing you're talking about? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's not really a secret that they're, with significantly less information this draft than we would normally yeah, have. Right. And so at the, the teams turned to analytics to come up with some substitutes, some alternatives and substitutes for those, those pieces of information. Yeah. I mean, there's been, I mean, there's been a ton of articles, whether it's like online or on Twitter and things like that, about all the different things teams were trying to do this year. I think it's really interesting seeing um, how teams are getting smarter. Any, any, any favorite of yours, That's maybe not something y'all did, but you saw something that another team did or was written about publicly. Um, not necessarily. I, it's more just like that general sense that you, you kind of see cool ideas out there. And um, again, well, I think speak- every, all the really, the really good stuff was like the teams who were combining it with what their scouts did, not doing it on their own. Corey, that remind, just makes me think about the general enterprise of continuing to learn. And one way you guys learn is you hire in these folks from other sports and you hire in new blood. What are other ways that you kind of stay fresh and learn and, and, and kind of expand the way you think about these problems? Where are you looking generally for like new ideas and inspiration? Yeah, I think what's been really helpful for us is like going to other sports because, I mean, other football teams are not going to talk to us and we're not going to talk to other football teams. Mm-hmm. but you know, we mentioned Sig earlier, he's become one of my really, really good friends. And, you know, so you kind of talk about maybe some of the things they're doing and how something they've learned could apply to us. So you talk to that or you talk to teams, other sports, or even going to the conferences and kind of, I mean, 
following what's going on on football Twitter, right? Like there are a lot of really smart people who could be working for teams that are putting really fantastic work out there um, just on, on the internet to be seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was fortunate enough that I got a chance to be, to work for a team, but you know, I, I'm not here to think that I can't learn from other people who aren't working for teams. Yeah, it's funny you say that Corey, I have the same feeling about football Twitter that um, it doesn't distinguish me at all in that world that I work at Wharton or that I've got a, a published paper or two in football because the community is just so smart and the practitioners are cycling through these ideas so much faster than academics are that it's just some really, really good work. And it's, it's transparent work and people are in dialogue with each other. And it's just, it's been so much fun to watch over the last 10 years. I I love that your position is, Hey, look, I'm inside a building, but that doesn't mean that I really have anything on this community. I feel the same way from, as an, from an academics perspective, it's so much fun to watch these guys work and, and to, and be inspired by them, frankly. So Corey, uh, give us some sense of what your year looks like now. You guys are, you know, two days, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. You're three days out of the draft. I suspect you're already talking about evals for the 2022 draft in some sense. I know the NFL in general takes vacation, you know, for a few weeks in June or so before camp kicks in in July. But can you get the scouting calendar? We started this whole conversation by saying you guys have been working on this for a year. Give our listeners some sense of how serious that is. I mean, are, are this, what are the guys working on, you know, like this week or next week, when do they start doing spring evals? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, I think uh, we took Sunday and Monday and I think everybody's back at it today already. It's not, what, is back, you, what does back really at no it rest. mean? What does back at it yeah, mean? Yeah. I mean, you would kind of mentioned it. Like you're looking at, there's another draft in a year and it, you never seem to have enough time. Right. So you might as well get started working on that draft now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, uh, good, good luck to you. Good luck with the work you guys are doing. Appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Great fun to talk with you, Corey, all the time. Let's not make it um, another seven years before we get you back here on the show. <laughs> Sounds good. Corey Craywick, manager of player evaluation and analytics with the Baltimore Ravens. And that has been another Wharton Bunnyball, another two hours of sports analytics. Appreciate you guys being with us for the whole team. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner for the boss man, Matty D. We'll be back here again next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.